All right. Well, two weeks ago, uh, we read about God's final communication of the promise of the birth of Isaac to, remember, 99-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah. Now today, we're going to jump back into Genesis and, and see what happens right after that promise was made. Abraham and Sarah were having a hard time believing the promise of the Lord. Remember, though, is anything too hard for the Lord? And now, Lot and his family are going to have a hard time believing God's promise as well, but for a much different reason. Before we start reading, and we're going to be reading about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah today, but I want you to know right out of the gate, right at the beginning, that this is not going to be a message about homosexuality. America, the Supreme Court, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, or anybody else. I'm not going to tell you how I feel about Democrats or Republicans or what you'd better do to make sure your kids stay straight or it'll all be your fault or anything like that. Do you know why? Because that's not what this passage is about. That's not what this scripture is about. This passage of scripture is about sin and judgment and grace. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, Homosexuality will come up because it is in there. It's in there and it is sin. But if we think that all this passage is about is homosexuality, then we've missed the point. Then we've missed the point. Do we really want to walk away from God's word thinking Oh boy, I'm glad I don't have that problem. Uh, Realize that's nothing more than self-righteousness. Or, man, I hope my kids don't turn out like that. Or even worse, uh, some people might be here, a person might be here today struggling with these desires. Would we want them to walk away today with no hope? With no help? Uh, Just a reminder that when people talk about Jesus saves that that really only means people like them, people that aren't that messed up. Uh, But that's not the gospel. Uh, Those are just mean opinions that people share when they're going on self-righteous rants. And that doesn't please God. That doesn't please God, and it doesn't help people. It just wears them down and crushes them. Or if they don't struggle with that particular sin, it reinforces their legalistic pride. And we don't want to do either of those things. Those are both bad things. So as you can probably tell, there's going to be some heaviness in this message today. But take heart, because Jesus has overcome the world. And the more we realize the seriousness of our sin and the heaviness of our fallen condition the more beautiful and glorious the grace of God in Jesus Christ becomes. And beholding that, the beauty of Jesus Christ, and loving the glory of God will do exceedingly more, exceedingly more for us in our fight against sin than any self-help, I can do this, pull myself up by my bootstraps, kind of effort will ever or could ever accomplish. It's all God's grace. So, 
You ready to start reading? Genesis 18. Genesis 18. We're going to start reading in verse 16. It says, Then the men, remember these are angels that had come to meet with Abraham and to talk to him and Sarah and the Lord with them. So three. The men set out from there. And they looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. You know, so he was standing out in the front yard and waving as they drove off, right? Saying goodbye, thanks for your visit. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, the order of events right there. God chooses Abraham. That's one. Two, Abraham obeys God so that generations are instructed. It never says there that they're all going to obey, but they will be instructed. And then through that nation, number three, through that nation, God's promises will be fulfilled. Does that make sense? That is the order of events that God just laid out there. At the bottom line, Jesus didn't come because Israel succeeded. That's not what happened. Jesus came because God fulfilled his promise. And it came through Abraham and through Israel because God chose them. So all the glory goes to God. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. And that word in the Hebrew is kavod. It means heavy. There's a heaviness to it, a weightiness. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, wait a minute. Does, does God know what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, I'm sure he's well aware already. Uh, but he wants to communicate something to Abraham and then years later to us, okay? A couple things. Number one, even other sinful people are alarmed by the sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're alarmed by it. People are crying out to God about this. Uh, Number two, God uses the language of going down. Uh, We think of the word condescending. Sometimes we sing in the hymns. Remember, for humans to condescend, it's, it's rude and mean because I can't condescend down to another human because we're both sinners, But when God condescends, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And so God is going down. Think about the Tower of Babel, remember? God said, let us go down and see what's happening. And he's going to do the same thing here with Sodom. Number three, the distance traveled. Uh, That word, remember, kavod in the Hebrew, it means heavy, is also used in the Old Testament to refer to the weight of God's glory. His glory is heavy. There's a heaviness. And so you have in this picture God condescending from the heights of his glory to the depths, the weightiness of the sin of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in that region. And then number four, how deep? In comparison to what Abraham might think of as bad, God proposes the idea of asking, could it really be that bad? He's making a point but with the hope that it's not. And Abraham's going to latch on to that hope 
that maybe it's not that bad. And that's where we pick it back up in verse uh, 22. Verse 22. And it says here in the header in my Bible, Abraham intercedes for Sodom. We'll kind of see if that's actually what's going on here, okay? Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. In a sense, Abraham's praying to the Lord here, isn't he? But then he continues. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Since I'm doing this, let's keep going. I am, I, I who am, uh, but dust and ashes. There's a recognition of who he is before the Lord. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. So 45. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him said, and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, Abraham, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. A little presumptuous. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And this keeps going. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I'll speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, kiddos, I would not encourage you to use that tactic with your parents, okay? <laughs> and parents, let's not be encouraged to take that tactic with the Lord either, necessarily, right? Uh, fitting that at the end of that passage, the conclusion of Abraham is that Abraham returned to his place. He was put back in his place. Abraham made intercession. He requested of the Lord justice for the righteous. And he gets the idea that justice will be served. And that it won't be withheld. The proof? We're going to see a little bit later when he stands out looking towards Sodom discerningly, expectantly. Verse 19, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. This probably means that Lot was not just a resident of the city, but now was serving as an official judging. Remember when Ruth and Boaz were being married, they went to the people who were at the gate. They were serving as judges in that city. So Lot is in that position within Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords. Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you may rise up early and go on your way. That's not unlike Abraham's invitation earlier in the day from two weeks ago when we read through the first part of Genesis 18. Except they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he, Lot, pressed them strongly. Why, we might ask. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. Repetition here of men and men and man for emphasis. And which generation? All of them, young and old. And how many of them? All but 50? All but 45? 
40. All but 30. All but 20? All but 10. No. There was one man in Sodom that was not outside of Lot's house that night, and it was Lot. Verse 5, they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. And this is a biblical euphemism. The word euphemism is just, it means a figure of speech that is used to take the edge off of what's really being said. Does that make sense? And to use a modern euphemism for the sake of the kiddos at present, uh, these men of Sodom, all of them, wanted to sleep with the men inside Lot's house. In sequence, in order, one after the other. Lot says, it says in verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. We might ask, why would he feel comfortable to do that at present? And he said, I beg you, my brothers, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So Lot's riding the fence here. He calls the sin sin, but he also calls these men his brothers. He's saying, hey guys, I'm with you. I'm with you. I get it. But please don't do this wrong thing. And in order to attempt to show his loyalty to these men, the men of Sodom, he offers them his own daughters. Verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. And do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Whoa. Lot just offered his daughters to be violated by every man in the city of Sodom to show his loyalty to them. And aren't they his own daughters under the protection of his roof? But they said, these men outside, stand back. And they said, this fellow, Lot, came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, emphasis, the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. Lot had become a part of this society. He was one of them. I don't think it's wrong then to assume at least the possibility this means the worst of what we might think it means. They came to Lot's house expecting him to share and were surprised and offended when he didn't. So then Lot tried to feign his loyalty, but they did three things. They criticized their own decision to give him a place of authority in town. Why did we ever accept you? Number two, they returned him to the social status of a foreigner and a sojourner, which means, number three, they promised Lot they would treat him like a foreigner and a sojourner that night. And all three men were now targets, Lot and the two angels. Verse 10, but the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, all of them, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. As a result of their collective sudden blindness, the blindness of every man in Sodom but Lot, they all realized that their error, they realized their error and repented in dust and ashes, right? 
No, instead, they pushed even harder, trying to get to and trying to get through the door until they wore themselves out. They only quit because they were too exhausted to continue. We used to have a dog, a little chocolate lab. She was terrible. We would put her in a kennel before we left the house because if we didn't, she would tear the couches and the blinds up and all that kind of stuff. And when we came home, she would have never quit trying to get out of her kennel to the point where her paws and her nose were bleeding. And she never quit. Never quit. You know why? Because she was an unintelligent animal. Okay, and I say that just to say this. How depraved can man get? Like a dog returning to its own vomit. Aren't we people too? We can do some pretty silly things ourselves, right? But it's like an animal. What's happening here? Verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law? Sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. Okay, angels aren't omniscient. They're asking these questions. For, for we're about to destroy this place because of the outcry against it. People has, the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Why did Lot have to go out to his sons-in-law, his soon-to-be sons-in-law? Because they were outside. They were going to commit this heinous sin against the angels and against Lot. They were there when Lot offered them his daughters. And they were the ones with the rest who continued to press in on the door until they were too exhausted to continue. These are the fiancés of Lot's daughters. And it says, up! He said to these two men, up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. He's just a joke. He's just a joke. Lots in a place where making that kind of a statement would be rendered as a joke worthy to be mocked. Think about that. These men had been blinded and refused to believe the truth. And why didn't they believe? They didn't want to. Verse 15, as morning dawned, The angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he, what's it say? Lingered. So the men, the angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. Mercy means I'm not getting what I deserve. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So so here's the visual. One angel, think about this, has Lot, we'll say he has Lot and Lot's wife, grabs them by the hand. The other angel takes the two daughters, grabs them by the hand, walks them out of their house, through the city, and out of the gate before they let them go. Because if they hadn't, they'd still be in there. That is the case. That is the scenario right now. They did not want to leave. And as, verse 17, as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. 
Run for your life. Do not look back. And this look here means do not gaze upon, you know, longingly. Do not look back. Do not stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. These things that he's saying, these nice things, he's just is flattering them. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, the angel said this, I grant you this favor also. (laughs) Very generous, very merciful. That I will not overthrow that city, the city of which you have spoken. Meaning that that city was going to be judged with the rest of the reason, but now it won't. Escape there quickly. For I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Zoar means little place. So think about this now. The angel just dragged Lot's family out of the city and told them to run for the hills. Literally. And Lot says, we'll die in the hills. We need to run to the city. The family does not want to listen because they do not want to leave and they do not want to change. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. And then the Lord reigned. As soon as they got in the city, the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew, turned over these cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, except for Zoar, of course. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. Guess how? Longingly. And she became a pillar of salt. Uh, We might hope that Lot's wife turned to see the devastation and feel compassion for the people of the region. That would at least have been a considerate thing to look back for, but that's not what she was doing. Given all of this family's response so far, all of their responses, why did she turn around? What was she longing for? What did she want? Mercy for the people? Or to get all of her life back? To get her stuff back? She would rather have her old life than the God who saved her from it. And so, as it does to all those who prefer their life of sin and prefer to reject God's saving grace, God's judgment extended to her. And even though the angels had saved her out of Sodom, even though she had cleared out of the valley, she shared in its judgment under the mighty hand of the Lord. Verse 27, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked. And this word in the Hebrew is different than the kind of looking Lot's wife did. It's a different word. This was not a looking of longing or regard, but a looking of inspection and discernment. What happened? Abraham looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley and he looked And behold, and the word behold in the Hebrew is another way to say, look. So Abraham looked, and in his looking he looked, and look. There's three looks right here. None of them like Lot's wife. But behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Abraham looked with understanding. There was a reason he'd talked God down to ten righteous people. He knew. And perhaps the dread at the idea of Lot's demise 
and his compassion for his nephew caused him to look, to see what might have happened to his family. Translation, you can disagree with someone's lifestyle. You can disagree with their sin. And it's right to say that sin is sin and righteousness is righteousness. And you can know that what they're doing is wrong and still have compassion. Not glorying in their judgment or demise. Abraham was right to not throw a party that day. What Abraham was doing was right. He didn't deny that sin was sin. He didn't expect God to turn a blind eye. Abraham knew Lot and all of those cities were living wickedly. And he asked God to spare the wicked for the sake of the, hopefully, the righteous. Because he was hoping for Lot's safety. The world and the devil want you to think that the only way to show compassion to people who live in sin is to tell them and to agree with them that what they're doing is okay. To call sin righteousness. But that is not compassion. That's not compassionate in any way. And it's not compassionate in any way to tell a person that what they're doing, which, like all sin, will send them to hell, is okay. That it's approved. That is hateful. That is not kindness. When we give an answer, we need to give it with gentleness and respect. But we don't lie to make people feel good about the very things that will destroy them and hurt others. That's not love. That's not peace. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of us. Some of you, it says in this text. Remember, we need to be humble. We have every reason to be humble. But it says you were washed You were sanctified. You were set apart and made clean. You were justified. You were counted as innocent, not guilty, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Remember, too, that in our conversations with people or about people who are in sin, if you say something like, boy, I'm glad I'm not like them, or what are those idiots thinking? A couple things. Number one, If you're saying these kinds of things, realize you sound just like the Pharisee who Jesus said was lost and without justification. The sinner, remember, who humbly beat his chest and repented was the one who went home that day justified. And if we are different than that, if we don't have that kind of bondage to sin, why? Why are we free? It's because of the grace of God. You were washed You were sanctified. Someone else did all that stuff. God did it. God did it. So there's there's reason for our humility. There's reason for us to offer help and hope to others with gentleness and respect as opposed to verbally berating or mocking people who need Jesus just as badly, just as desperately as we do. Verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God answered Abraham's request beyond what he was able to ask or think. There were zero righteous people in Sodom. 
But God spared Lot anyways. He knew Abraham's heart. He knew he was worried about Lot. And he acted in mercy because of his love and covenant with Abraham. And that would be a nice place to end this narrative, right? Wouldn't it be great to know that Lot and his daughters went to Zoar, changed people, turning the city to righteousness and loving the Lord, and that doesn't happen. Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills hmm, with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. A double-minded man is un. Stable in all his ways. James 1.8 So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father's old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we'll lie with him, and that we may preserve offspring from our father. Okay, hold the phone. Where were they before they went camping in the hills? Zoar. Azora was a little place, but it was a place, a city. And in cities there are people. Did these young women really believe that there were no other men left on the entire planet? Didn't the angels tell them the extent of the judgment? This was regional. This was not a global flood. So why did the girls come up with this plan? They wanted to. And they made themselves look like heroes in the process. Saving mankind. Saving their father's honor and lineage. We must do this. This is the lie they told themselves to get this done. Verse 33, So they made their father drink wine that night. A lot of it, evidently. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when he when she arose. And the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine again tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. Made their father drink wine. Why did Lot get that drunk? Because he wanted to. And the younger arose. And lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. And Moab comes from the words meaning from our father. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. His name means Son of my people. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So, two people groups result from these two nights of incest. And the names of these peoples remind them of their origin. Imagine having a national name that means I came from an incestual relationship. And that's exactly what they had. And these two nations, we know from later in Scripture, would become enemies of Israel in the years ahead. Though a woman, I've already mentioned her once today, a woman from one, one of them, uh, Ruth the Moabitess, would leave behind her people and her people's gods and become an Israelite by faith and become the great-grandma of who? King David. King David. So let's answer some questions as we reflect on this passage. Three questions. Number one, why did Lot move to Sodom? 
Why did he become a part of that community? Why didn't they want to leave? And why did the girls want to have children by their father? And on and on those questions could go. We have to be frank and honest with the answers to these questions and say that they, Lot and his family, simply wanted to do all of these things. We do what we do because we want what we want. And now, they may very well have had other desires for things like approval, for social status, the praise of man, physical pleasure, instant gratification. It could have been anything. But their thinking produced their desires, and their desires resulted in their actions. It's always that way. So church, why do we sin? Did the devil make me do it? No. We sin because we want to. That's a hard thing to come to grips with, but it's a wonderful thing to come to grips with because that's a path to repentance. I sin because and when I want to. We sin when we want to. We always do what we want to do. Now, we might say after we sin, why did I do that? This is not what I wanted. But the response to that statement is either I'm only remorseful because I didn't get the outcome I wanted, or I thought the sin I committed was necessary to get something else that I wanted. Meaning like the the ends justify the means. But James 4 says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why do we sin? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have, I didn't get what I wanted, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. I didn't want anyone to get hurt, maybe not. But the problem is that I didn't care about anyone but myself. And am I upset that someone got hurt? Or because people are upset with me because someone got hurt? You do not have, it says, because you do not ask. You ask, you do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, your own selfish desires. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, bitter animosity and hatred? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot call yourself a Christian and love living in the ways of the world. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God doesn't give us his spirit at our salvation to be ignored. But he gives more grace, it says. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Satan cannot make you do anything. Resist him. He's powerful. Don't treat him lightly, but he is not your master. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. We have to stop acting like our sin isn't a big deal. Christ died for our sin. We're betraying God's love and grace when we go after the world. It says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So the answer here, why all the sin? Because that's what people want. People sin because they want to. And if what characterizes a person's life is sin and sinfulness, when a person is living in sin, we need to pray for their repentance and pray for their salvation, even if they're calling themselves a Christian. Because followers of Jesus follow Jesus. We aren't perfect. Amen? Christians aren't perfect, but we're growing and we're changing by God's grace. I think one of Satan's greatest tools against the gospel 
is people who call themselves Christians and live for their sinful pleasures, hurting people in the process, manipulating them with the expectation of unrepentant forgiveness. Unrepentant, you owe me forgiveness. And making Christianity look like a joke in the process. We have to have grace. We need to be merciful because God is merciful. But we better, we better watch ourselves that we are not like that. Number two, what is the right way to think about judgment and intercession? Uh, remember, the header for the section on Abraham's intercession, it said Abraham intercedes for Sodom. Who was Abraham interceding for? Lot and his family, because they were his family and he loved them. Whose integrity and righteousness did Abraham actually appeal to? Theirs or God's? God's. Abraham asked God if it would be right for him to punish the righteous with the guilty. But church, who is righteous? There is none righteous, no, not one. Take heart, the good news is coming in a minute, okay? Why? Why did God say he told Abraham any of this anyways? Why did Abraham even get the chance to intercede and make this request? Because God chose him. Because God chose him. And did God answer Abraham's request? No. He did more than that. God found zero righteous people, and he answered the heart of Abraham's plea anyways. He saved Lot and his family out of Sodom. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit, God the Spirit himself, makes intercession for us with groanings too deep for words. Keep praying. And as far as judgment goes, who did we say is righteous again? No one but Jesus, right? Abraham was right in not having a party for Sodom's destruction. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 3 through 9. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, not fakers, peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Is it right? Is it right and good for us to discern between sin and righteousness? Yeah. Is it right and good for us to remember who we are, why we are saved, why we are growing, and what all these other people around us need just as desperately as we did and as we do? Remember, there is rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. I don't think there's a verse in the Bible that tells us about any excitement in heaven at the damnation of a sinner. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us that heaven goes silent at one point. All of heaven's silent at the pending judgment to come. It would seem from all these passages and others that the Lord would have us to remain humble, honest, making peace, not faking it, willing to take a stand for righteousness without being arrogant about it, knowing and being ready for the persecution that might come as a result. Our God is able and just to rain down fire and brimstone on sinners, and we are sinners. So let's not glory in people's downfall. Let's try to point them to Jesus. And then last thing, who can escape judgment? This is where we have to remember, I'm not going to heaven because I'm better than other people. God has not kept me from punishment because I'm too special. 
And the reason why God hasn't punished me isn't because I don't deserve it. In fact, he did punish my sin at the cross. Jesus took my penalty on himself. The wrath of God was poured out on him, and he saved me. He saved us. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. God chose me and set me apart by his grace. I've been justified by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if God can save a guy like Lot, which, by the way, the New Testament says he did, and if God can save a man like moon-worshipping Abraham... If God can save a persecutor of Christians, the self-proclaimed chief of sinners like Paul, how arrogant of him to call himself that. And if God can save someone like me, who's really no better than any of them, do we really think that? Then he can save you too. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So if you're here today and you know that you're caught up in sin, you know That truth be told, you love your sinful life more than the God who would save you from it and its eternal consequence. If you know these things and you're admitting them, great, repent. Repent. Put your faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your sin at the cross. You can't change, but God can change you. And if you're a Christian here today and struggling with sin... Uh, like you're turning and longingly looking at your old life, longingly looking at the world and feeling like maybe you should be turned into a pillar of salt. Remember, you didn't get this far by yourself. You didn't get there by yourself, by your own power in the first place. So don't leave God out of it now. He is the one who has called you righteous. He is the one who's going to make you righteous. Draw near to God. Cry out to him. Plead for his sanctifying grace. And then let's talk. Let's talk. Remember, we're in this together. We're in this together. Nobody here is perfect. But we're headed there. And and one day when this life is over, by God's grace, he's going to do what he promised to do, like he always does. And we're going to be just like Jesus. And we won't even want to sin anymore. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are. You are holy. You are righteous. You are love. You're forgiving. You're patient and long-suffering. You are merciful. And you're gracious. God, thank you that we get to enjoy you. That we get to worship you for your glory, your goodness, and your goodness to us in giving us Christ and giving us salvation and giving us eternal life and hope and freedom. God, I pray that we would see passages like this, that we would be amazed at your grace that you've given to us, that we would be compelled to praise you for it and that our attitude and our sincerity and our humility, our meekness, but our boldness because of our faith in you and the assurance that we have of the faithfulness of your promises 
that we get to point others to Jesus too. God, thank you for your love. Uh, Be with us as we sing, Lord, be worshipped by your church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.